Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Quote and Quote TK. Today we are going to talk about the recent farm bill which were repealed and analyze what are the issues behind why these farm bills failed and what's the future of farm and agri reforms in India. Let me remind you, in season one, we had invited Mark Khan to talk about the mystery behind the three farm bills and the issues and the context behind these farm bills and what's the way forward in terms of these farm bills and the agri reforms. We had a full year of farmer agitation and political bad slinging and backlash and recently farm bills were repealed. Obviously, this seems to be a setback but not everybody believes this to be a setback. So just to understand the context in which these farm bills were repealed and what's going to happen to the future of farm and agri reforms in India, I have invited back Mark Khan, the partner at Omnivore Capital, who spoke to us in our first season. Just for your reference and refreshing your memory, Mark is a founding partner of Omnivore Capital, an impact venture fund that invests in Indian startups developing breakthrough technologies for food, agriculture, and rural economy. Mark has been executive vice president at Godrej Agrovet, one of India's foremost diversified agri group. And also, Mark started and incubated this fund out of Godrej Group. Prior to starting off this fund, Mark had also worked with Syngenta and Mark has a BA honors from University of Pennsylvania, UPenn and an MBA from Harvard Business School where he graduated as a Baker Scholar. Mark has been on several industry bodies including CII's National Council for, on Agriculture and member of the Agri Innovation Showcase Advisory Committee. To also help us understand the regulatory complexity and the reform agenda and how it could be successfully implemented in future in the farm and agri sector. We have been joined by Michaela Krishnamurthy, who is an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at Ashoka University. Michaela has been very astute policy person in the space of agriculture. Let me just walk you through her profile. Michaela has trained at Harvard University the University of Cambridge, where she did her MPhil in Social Anthropology and at University College London, where she completed her PhD in Anthropology as a UCL Global Excellence Scholar. She is also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Policy Research, New Delhi, and a non-resident scholar at the Center for Advanced Study of India at the University of Pennsylvania, where she previously had a postdoctoral fellowship. Prior to joining Ashoka University, she taught at Department of Sociology, Shivnana University. Michaela has been writing, publishing a lot of research and on agriculture, and she has been engaged in the area of agriculture, where she has written extensively on complexity and dynamics of agriculture markets, regional capitalism, and economic life in India. Between 2018 and 2020, she was also the principal co-investigator and co-author on a major interdisciplinary and collaborative and comparative research project on agri-markets, agro-commodities, network, and farmer incomes in Punjab, Bihar, and Odisha. She has been working and has done a lot of work 
in areas of building state capacity, strengthening public institutions in democratic and federal India. Welcome back, Mark, and welcome, Mikala, on a podcast show. It's a, it's a pleasure Mark, to be here. What happened? We were very upbeat in late 2020 when we were on our podcast show on the three bills, and a year later, Everything is washed out. What's your assessment and how does investor confidence now play out? Well, I, I wanna, I want everyone to, to take a giant about the impact of the rollback of the farm. Let's be clear. They were mooted. They were passed. They were almost done. And now they've been rolled back. So I think, you know, when we were asked by journalists after, after minutes rolled back the laws, what the impact was, I said, basically nil. You know, none of the agribusiness or agri startups in India really were able to take advantage. Very, very bad. Lasted a week, and so going back, you know, the old status quo doesn't change at all. I think investor sentiment, you know, was quite positive for the the farm. It got more positive, and then went back to kind of being normal. I really think the implication for for policy are significant. The implications for democracy are significant. The implications for to reform something discussed today. But I think people overstated the extent or benefit agri-tech and, and agri-starters. And so I, I think it's worth understanding that, that it really that impact because nothing ever really happened. I want to move to Mikela. Mikela, you've written some uh, articles analyzing about the whole incident of the farm regulations and and reform. Yes. Analyze and for our audience's sake, if you could even talk about what you have written in the article, that'll be great. And we will obviously put the link to the article also in our podcast show. Sure. So, I mean, you know, in some ways, I very much echo what Mark has said, which is that, you know, I think we overstated the fact that uh, the laws would have, because in many states, we already know had actually made the moves that the laws were pushing states to make. So they had already opened up their markets. There had been uh, a generation of APMC reform. Many of, you know, some states like Bihar had gone and opened up and deregulated them entirely. Others like Madhya Pradesh, Karnataka, Maharashtra had been in processes of opening up different degrees of ways. My own view is that that was the way in a good state subject. That is how reform should happen. The right. place will always be uneven. There will always be diversity. And I think, you know, it was unclear given the extent of reforms already that had been put in place, why a new central law on what has been the first transaction, very much interstate trade is one component could have been opened, you know, for certain kinds of reforms. But this wasn't about interstate trade. It was about primary markets. Um, and given the diversity of these markets, complexity of the fact that they ask and will have to implement it in the states in any, um, I think we should have tried and persisted with the approach that had been folded, um, you know, renewed those efforts at the so in some ways, I feel, although, you know, a lot of agricultural markets got a lot of airtime, I think the approach to the reform was not at all optimal in the first place. So in that sense, from a federalism point of view, from a point of view of what policy making in agriculture should look, I think we are back to a place which is not a bad place. We just need to renew our commitment. So I think that is the first point I'd like. The second is that, you know, while I think many states had already enacted some moves to open up the APMC system, and I think that those were very important, these laws went too far in the deregulation. In a subject where from a farmer's perspective, you need better regulation. You need well-regulated agriculture. You don't need deregulated markets and you don't where there is certainly more regulatory ambiguity 
and a turf war between centers. So actually what you had if these laws had been implemented would have been a lot of regulatory confusion because now you had trade areas, market areas, some came under APMC Act. So thinking from the point of view of any kind of agricultural enterprise or agro enterprise, a buyer is trying to enter these, you had actually created more confusion because you now had a proliferation of different kinds of regulatory regimes operating within a particular state and then across. So India needs better regulation, more thoughtful public in agricultural markets, and the states need to do a much, much better job. The center has a critical role to coordination and in building a policy but so i in some ways i think you know this hopefully we'll take the right lessons away from exercise and whatever has happened been a sort of really tragic year in some way and polarization has but i do feel you know coming into this new year we'll take the right lesson from this and recommit to a much much better um agriculture just a, but i'm not particularly <laughs> i i think i'm i'm disappointed point because here is that form of the agricultural set in any way, shape, or form come a third rail in Indian politics. Uh, that's my my source is is that both at the state and central level, politicians will look at this experience and say, it is not worth changing the status quo. One way or the other, we will find ourselves booted or hoisted on our own guitar and just not reforming. So my fear is how the chilling effect politically on any the second point that I wanted to kind of build on saying, I think what's a bit unfortunate is truthfully, only one of the three major really come. I, I, I mean, they all got bundled up together protests because, I mean, to be clear, they were issued as, you know, as three in laws. But, but truthfully, right, it was the form of Mondays and APMC really the thing that most people took um, I think the law around contract farming was always very speculative and almost because globally so little contract farming actually takes not that to have, you know, that contract. And so I, I never thought that law was did what the thing. Then finally, I'm honestly upset about about the re-regulation along the of the Essential Commodities Act, which is truly a pre-liberalization law that I feel is anachronistic at best and really limits the extent to which modern agribusiness structure and export oriented export oriented development. I'd be curious what you have to say. Mark, thanks a lot for coming because I think you're absolutely right. The three acts are quite they have different history and uh, different treaties in fact yeah? and um, they they actually address very different well so i completely agree with you that the most controversial and the one which i was went too far and deregulate was the you know the trade and commerce the fptc and there you know all the problems that are military and, and sure. tension and it was just very poorly draft and we would not have done this kind of even a policy framework like this for any significant sector, certainly not where we would not have protected exchange in a more rational right? So I think that was a very problematic law. I, I'm with you on, on contract farming. In fact, I mean, there's always been a debate about whether we needed contract farming law or how to govern a range of different kinds of contracts. And again, many around kinds of systems. And I think a lot of good criticism has come earlier generation, even of the model contracting laws were better, whether this was required or whether it was going to be particularly. And I also agree with you on the Essential Commodities Act. I mean, I think one thing we needed to keep in mind, um, and this year has shown that is, is that the intention to implement the Essential Commodity Act, if it was about providing greater and less use in, you know, needle government of a state in price, particularly those that not only usually work to the detriment of farmers, 
but also deter long-term stable investments make in our system, the government had no intention of actually implementing. Because even before the the bills were introduced, already in September, they went back on export policy, export, import. Now, stock limits have come back. And futures again, which had nothing to do with ECA, right? So, ECA was supposed to be a signal. The amendment was supposed to be a signal that we are going to shift the way we think about state, uh, particularly when it comes to price policy, that usually looks at rising prices about consumers in a very short to a much more reasoned approach to how you would manage. It would not only include stock limits, but also how you think about trade and move. Now, I, I think there we saw very clearly that that wasn't the And it means that you need a certain degree of technical understanding as well as a much greater degree of creativity in exploring the ways in which you have to manage prices. And this gets much more complicated, of course, with the MSP debates. But in general, understanding the role of state intervention in price when you do have a large number of producers, very large consumers, or poor consumers. This is a sensitive issue. It's a sensitive issue in every. But this short-term, knee-jerk, idiosyncratic, unpredictable policy works for no one, and it certainly doesn't harm. So I think that I agree with you that the, the law would have been desirable if, in fact, the law was a signal that we were shifting. But clearly, there wasn't the. And you saw that even when the, the laws hadn't spent. And also to say that even in that, one should have thought a little bit about questions of invent. You know price discovery, understanding market intelligence better, right? The recording of transaction order where you have strong marks. So you would make sure that you have better so recording so that at a later day you need to look at antitrust, look at competition, you have the decoy. So, you know, you wanted better regulated, more competitive markets on the one hand, but you also wanted, you know, much greater policy ability, understanding of how and I don't think the laws came out of that moment. They were done without the required thinking through. And so hopefully, again, now we're in a position where we may be able to this. I just want to refer to your point. You're absolutely right. In election cycles, agriculture markets have always been hot potato. People are always nervous anyway to get, get into reform. And this may have this kind of say. But having studied state-level reform in different politicians have shown at various points considerable nerve. And in when they have really understood and changed the ways in which markets are organized, particularly if they understand the value. And we've seen this in the early generation. Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, certain, and, and there are rollbacks. There is obviously, you know, interests and there's kind of like this constant tension. But I think... You know, state-level reform is not... Sometimes we don't see how hopeful it can be because states have made fairly big strides. Uh, you know, Karnataka is another state which really held its nerve on certain critical reforms. Of course, it's an ongoing course, keep deepening. But the states often do more than we give them credit for. And I think state-level do have the balance. And you so think, I think, and you think yeah. it, that, that state-level policy not will understand just how rooted opposition was to pick politics of Punjab and Haryana and UP. Correct. And we, and we spoke about it uh, in our podcast, 5,000 crores of revenue that the state would lose the APM, out. The Punjab APMC get. Exactly. Yeah, I think states get it. Yeah, that would be my sense. I think states understand this, you know. But I think a very important question, direction that the just signal in terms of the depth and breadth of reforms in this that they have So, you know, if we keep going out with rice procurement and that's where the incentives are stacked then you'll have the kind of tension that you currently have in selling where they're pushing the you know center to buy more fat and grow more but if you can give a signal that you're really looking at deeper reform and that you would support other kinds of 
project. I think the states will respond and I think they see it and it's also vital for them. So I, I do think that there is a possibility. But for this, the center, it has to not become a center. The center has to support the states in getting to their goal. It cannot be about who gets credit. So if it's PM Kisan, it's a center. If it's Kalia, it's some state. There needs to be agreement between the two to actually do things which is to farm and deep reforms, including, you know, the kinds of export orientation that some states might have, integration that other states would have with domestic markets. So I think there's a lot that can be done, but this fundamental center-state tension is going to have to be with a lot more commitment from both. I, I suspect I, my one prediction when, when laws were rolled back, and I could be exactly 100 but I, I was asked off the record at the time by a journalist what i thought would happen and i said wait for the elections to get over and the fci will cure less in north india this year and less the year after that and less maybe i'm totally wrong about this but my sense is if if i were the center right now i would be like cool you got your way now i'm gonna get mine you see uh this whole failure of this whole form process and the bills being peeled also gives a farmer and the farmer lobby a lot of confidence to be able to dictate prices, to be able to dictate a lot more on the regulation and whatnot. Joe Biden had to give a billion dollar grant just because poultry and other prices have inflated so much that it's out of the bounds of the consumer. So I believe that the same may happen in India whether the Essential Commodities Act is implemented or not, we are seeing prices of agri-produce at the consumer end now increasing and inflation, food inflation prices are also going northward. Does that mean that in future, the farmer lobbies will be able to dictate much more aggressively the pricing of agri-produce that they want to sell? I want to take a stab at this by contextualizing America as, as the American on the call. You have to remember that America only has, okay, India has, depending on whose number you believe, let's say 100 million. Some people say it's less, but let's just average it out. The power of the farm lobby in the United States is a function of consolidation. The fact that there are only 2 million farms, right, many of those are hobby farms, and so... You probably have a couple of powerful farmers in the U.S. and agro and a highly consolidated agro environment that then milks the public sector right in the form of of the farm bill. In the U.S. is very very from uh-huh. the in context of let's say ten crore farmer right and a hyper fragment sector. So and I think we're still a long way away from having that kind the kind of national power that the American farm lobby has. You don't really see any of that in India. Even this na- even the quote national protests against farm law were really Punjabi Haryanvi right, farmers, primarily some from West P. You know, it was an exercise in power, certain, but I don't think we have a national idea, and I, I don't think we're likely to get one. No, and, and I think, Mark, just to echo what you're saying, it's not only that we don't have a farm movement, we certainly don't have a farm lobby, right? Movements are more sort of diverse anyway than lobby, sure. uh, which have to be very consolidated. And even the unions in Punjab and Haryana, I would argue, are not. A- and, you know, the way they had to manifest that protest shows that there are not a lot. Lobbies don't protest. Lobbies do other things. 
which are largely behind the scenes. And I, there I don't think commercials are portraying, you know, or thinking. One, I think you're absolutely right about the hyperfragment. The vast majority of farmers, you know, earn less than 10,000 in a month. They are not powerful. Secondly, I think when prices have gone up, even in the previous time where we saw higher commodities, they were responding to global prices. Indian farmers are overwhelmingly priced. Not, and wheat and paddy is only two of the crops and most farmers in India don't even get the MSP on them. So they are priced. Most Indian intermediaries are priced stick, right? This idea that intermediaries set prices they do within a context of you know fragmented markets and some amount of local market power but certainly in like the soybean market or the maize market that i know well they are not price set around more in order to have cartels exactly so there are some and certainly in local areas you you know some market power you capitalization syndicates but they're very small uh relatively and they don't wield a huge amount like the chili symbol so it doesn't wield a huge amount of state political power even in maybe at the district level certainly in the block they're powerful but they don't have that kind of uh, reach and you know again I would remind everybody that overwhelming when it comes to rising prices uh, and the whole fear of a huge amount of protection and other inflation we've actually seen low commodity prices as a result of a whole range of things both domestic and national uh, you know international prices. and usually when you start seeing a rise, this is when you start seeing the stock limits come in, export bans come the in. State, the state only ever, this is this is the ironic thing. It doesn't matter power. Usually the state only intervenes meaningfully in market. Yeah, exactly. So I don't see at all this giving farmers confidence that they can dictate prices. To dictate prices, you need to have market power, and they don't. They you are you also need to have, one of the things that you mispay, is an ideology, political policy idea, right? It, it's, I always thought it was very refreshing when, for all of his complexity, when Sharad Pavar was uh, of agri, because he, he presided over a time of rising global commodity prices. Though there were significant, then try to check rising consumer prices, net-net, and Methala, you've probably studied much detail, my sense is that that he was willing to let farmers eat those prices to the benefit of farmers. Yes, um, I think there was, yeah, yeah. That was the one moment where, and people started saying this as well, right? That, you know, if you're going to push diversity, if the theory is that, as people get a little wealthier, they're going to eat more diverse food, then that price is going to have to go to farmers, right? After all, farmers only get a proportion of what consumers are willing to pay. And Mark, I think you're right that there was, you know, there was a sense that we have to ride out of pain. Between consumers and producers, as you paid, and the ECA, that there has been an overwhelming policy reflex to, you know, whether it happens with pulses or with oil seeds. And what is unfortunate there is that we don't really think about better rationals, right? So the state can have, and, and people who have been part of NAFED and others have thought about this and even ideated, but nobody ever takes it up, that, you know, for onions, you want to have a small amount of buffer stock that will allow you to, in markets where you see prices go up, hurting poor consumers, give them some relief, or you want to transfer cash in certain ways or have a PDS more diverse so that you can provide a little more reliable a wider billion who are not able to access good. There are ways in which you can do it without major see that. And, and never a record of the extent price are marked. Yes. And so you see all of these different right? 
When in reality, it's like, no, look at look at the CME, look at global commodity price of this commodity. They're going up. They're also up, right? And whatever intervention, you know, you're, you're looking at doing, same. But, but I think one of the great challenges philosophically, right, is that there's, and I use this word in the classical sense, there's, there is, there are, are very liberal ideologues in either politics or uh, Iraq that say, listen, it's not my job. Actually, I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and the, actually, I shouldn't need fair and agree in a country where you do have a large poor country and where farmers themselves are quite poor. Of course, it has to come along with an understanding of, but those two are separate. So you can either a decouple you, them for God's sake. Exactly. Right. So you have to decouple them and understand what is happening, what requires welfare and what requires a different and what will grow, what action this grow. And you need, you know, not trying to solve all of this through a single very flex but and poorly executed or in terms of coverage as well sort of instrument like msp procurement right you need a lot more both in terms of procurement side production with marketers and in terms of looking at what does it provide good and go beyond like a narrow period to actually providing uh, for a period of time right and again these are not going to be endless but India is in a transition. Those transitions are complex in the work state. And policy making needs to be extremely both like I as you say, sort of have a philosophical and ideological clarity, but it also needs to then have institutional capacity to be very adaptive to the kinds of requirements that different, you know, groups of people in India will have. And therefore, you know, there is a big nutrition challenge as well. There is a very serious production side challenge. Um, and you can't keep coupling these two and thinking you can solve everything. You need to have much, much more context-specific approach. And I think, again, that is something that will only come and care deeply about the sector, politically, and in terms of, you know, its development function. So my big concern is always that we either treat agriculture as a wealth, and then we don't have an imagination as a vibrant sector of the economy. And I often point this out, but like, you know, just before the pandemic, the budget 20, agriculture wasn't even mentioned once in the section on, right? It was mentioned early on in Ask India. Um, no, I mean, listen, and, and my sort of at on what motivates is, is a philosophy. And our philosophy is that, is that agriculture and agro-industry are, is, is really the best and for developing India, developing India and making India a global right in, in global agriculture markets, you know, a smallholder Brazil. If we can solve, of course, the challenge. Um, but the idea that, that agro-industry processing and exports are a path out of abject poverty for millions of growers of farmers, older, you know, but path up these both farmer and welfare policies, not abandoned. Let's be clear, exactly. I am from the left, I am not right. But using input price subsidies and output price source to manage tire is, as I've said many times, a Rube Goldberg device. Yeah, yeah. It you doesn't know, work. And I think, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. And I think to reiterate what you just said, I think decouple, not, you know, abandon is so important. Yes. Because as soon as you hear, this was my problem with deregulation. Better regulation is not, de, you know, deregulation usually in very east market favors, you know, those with market power. So again, there are frames, right, that drop, which are far more sensitive. And I think the final point is, you know, India has always been important in lands, but not on its own terms, right? Either it's been a long colonial story or in recent times in very unequal terms. So actually setting the agenda for that, seeing the multipliers and all the data has always been is one of the fast problems, you know, and certainly at the stage and with a number of... Mark, I want to... You mentioned about Brazil and I wanted to bring out one very important topic. I was reading this whole report on Panama Papers and international money laundering 
through agribusiness and real estate. There's a report which I can share with you. And what we saw on the 15th of August about this whole Khalistan, do you think that the agri-sector in India is also moving in anti-money uh, or we need to bring in anti-money laundering in the agri-sector as well? Look, I think, and I say this as a as someone has worked in this sector, I, I think the reality is that, that certain parts, you know, while, while, while India has a tsunami, into into the white Correct. right. If you think about the parts that are black, there there's property in it, right? That's where you know th- those are the assets. Someone has black money, they might. And I think certainly you know, and that's certainly true of urban states. Mumbai knows that leases, all the things you know, apartments that are held in black. Um, and I you know I I'm certain that to some extent that's in in agricultural land as well. The the problem question is you know what you do with it. Because what you would first do, this, this goes to more fundamental as policy. You know, I, I said that, that if there's any form that I hope gets picked up at the point when people are exhausted from this prior experience trying some, is, is agricultural land reform, right? And agricultural land reform starts, first print starts, you know, the idea that, that agricultural land should be right, that people should have a right to farm or not farm, that they should have a right to buy and a right to sell. And at the same time that we need certain protections to make smallholders are not exploited and once you establish principle, right, then you go from there to, okay, we need a digital land register. We need to make a distinction between cultivator and landowner, which is very important, especially direct benefit. Right. We need to have, you know, rapid attention of, of land about taking in India disputed between, you know, boundaries and own what. All of which reduces the power of, of local players like fuck bodies that otherwise benefit from past. And all of that is a massive, massive lift. So saying, oh, we have, you know, money laundering agricultural land, I would say, yeah, sure, all of Indian property and any hard asset, right, that is closely watched by by the RBI. But I don't think we should overstate it. And I think that that solution we need to look at are not specific to money laundering. It's specific to the idea that people should have clear, clean, and very public title to the land they own. That should be understood by all actors, and they should be able to buy, sell, lease, have a third-party manage, and not fear expropriation, not water. And I think if you can solve all of those problems, right, and I think there are direction, there are in that direction, then some of the money laundering issue will come out, will no longer be as... I think the fear is if you just start attacking this from a money laundering perspective, if you do, okay, should we have taxes on farms, right, and then everyone's gone. Yeah, no, no, and if I can just add one other thing where... For, so I, I don't think, as you say, it's not it's not the biggest problem uh, that will strike you. And certainly, I don't think it was the biggest problem at all. Um, I think a lot of different agendas were brought in here from, you know, in terms of trying to question what was going on. And I think for most farmers in Punjab and Haryana, they are not part of that money laundering at all. They're caught in a different mire problem challenges, which the kinds of reforms you're talking about, currency, reliability, and better, more responsive land policy and land governance is extremely important, including making it sharecropper than others to participate in the system much, much better. So I think that's the first point. The second thing linked to this, though, is if you're going in the direction of and, and Mark, at the U.S. for Europe, you know, we really don't have an opinion carefully about the future of trust in agriculture. And if you're starting to talk about no, we competition, don't. Yeah. so if you're starting to talk about competition seriously, we also need to think about, and, and we're, because we're so much, you know, facing the challenges of consolidation, uh, I mean, hyper-fragmentation, we don't really, you know, yet address the challenges of consolidation. 
And in agricultural markets, if you want genuinely competitive, uh, you do need to have much better of record transactions, of intelligence, of price discovery, but also of your ability to understand the processes and dynamics, you know, in big ads. And that is something we're not there yet either. So I'm, I'm not trying to be alarmist. Yeah, but Michael, I'm going to push, I'm going to push back. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of an ant fan. Yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed with, I don't know if you asked Matt Stoller. Yes. He's kind of the preeminent, aggressive, uh, antitrust thinker in the U.S. along with Han, yes. uh, at, at the FTC. This is a space that yeah. I am, that I pay a lot of attention. Yes. I don't, let, let me put it this. Number one, I do not think in, in almost, with very, very few, that you have consolidation in any agricultural value chain. I agree. I maybe, I agree. maybe broiler poultry, kind of, but not really then, if I think about the market share held by a super. Yeah, market. yeah, I'm with you on this, Mark. I, I, I don't disagree. We don't, I, we don't have any value chain that is rolled up the way, for example, beef west, right? With, with just a handful of meat packers, the Biden administration decided to, to push back. I think if we're to start any kind of, of meaningful tissue in India, I have, I mean, there are two things that come to mind. One, is right where at the the intersection of my fear of monopoly and Indian agri is really rooted tail giant mobile and you know and and our completely consolidated mobile phone space then getting using their information dominant to take advantage of agri that's actually where I was starting as opposed to saying well do we think that the that the soy meal market is solid. No, we don't really have any processing. Yeah. I don't yeah. think. No, Mark, I'm actually completely going to echo. I don't at all. There's no pushback. What I'm saying is that if we're talking first, mm. then we're beginning to think about company. Then we think about what does company need, right? And we will not have the problem of the United States, just like we don't have the same money laundering problem that Brazil may, may or may not have. We don't have the American problem of over-consolidation. That's what I'm saying. We're actually in a fragment. Don't have that problem even in chains and of course as you said boiler poultry is one you know oil seed you'll start seeing a little more consolidation in other areas but even there we don't have those problems but i think the genuine challenge of say retail you know consolidation what you've just pointed out these require a force right like sure. for us to see what might happen and even if it was our yeah. right here you know people kept saying ambani adani ambani yeah. adani Right? Yeah. Even though, you know, Adani, while it, while it is an agri-process special oil, I, I would not call it a monopoly, right? But, yeah. I mean, I can't think of, of, you know, but, but in our mobile sector, it is, you know, it's essentially a duopoly. Yes. And starting to say, you know, it could never happen. We are all so, I mean, they, again, the U.S. is a good example. You know, a century ago, two centuries, you know, things happen and, and moments occur, right? And conjunctures, information, are, this is the conjuncture we are in. So being aware of that and understanding what occasion might. And then thinking, thinking about the conditions. So like Competition Commission of India is not ready to do these kinds of things. Think about policy, right? Um, oh, I mean, they're not lifting their finger. Giant, completely consolidated their face, right? Exactly. I just, I don't want to start them down the path on ag it's like guys there's some way lower hanging yeah, bigger things for them to get exactly. exactly so i'm not going to i i'm saying in both of these cases you know the proximate thing that we should and have better market better land reform are all the critical agenda line but there is a forward-looking agenda hired uh areas and say antitrust is a big one but not like it doesn't need it wouldn't be at the top of my list of things that we have to start with. but i would put it in the mix sooner or rather. i think i i actually think meaning is the best way to weigh the emission of hyper consolidation because you need to decouple the idea 
of land as an asset from farming as right. I'm you know, and, and that has been done successfully some while while Brazil is obviously a very, very coordinated space, if you go to Argentina, you will find a lot of urban Argentines still own their family homes right of I know it sounds a lot from an Indian standard, but you know, let's say a uh, hundred hectares, but they have a third party managing it for them really and fairly as if they were, you know, having a property company, you know, uh, oversee the apartment bought as an investment asset in bank, right? Um, and I think that's important that we direct because I think otherwise you have this situation where I don't ever want where, where instead of a hundred million farmers will have, you know, a crore of farmers that will own everything. I What I would rather see is all of these small holdings, the assets to be owned by people who then lease them out or have third parties manage them or have rental income. There's no that people owning these assets, right? And that's actually a better and more competitive. I think it's it's something we need to... I think the land issue is seen clearly if you work in Bihar. I mean, so many... Uh, and they're suboptimum for everybody. So I think getting back into thinking... It's, again, it's a decoupling problem. And so there's a series of decouplings that need to happen for us to get better. Yeah. Do you, do you have any... Let, let me ask you, as, as a policy person, folks face, what gives you hope? What Where do you see either... You know, bureaucrats or policy kind of get it, and that are so. I mean, yeah. So I mean, I think in India, really, I think um, the dynamism has to look. And I think in the states, there are both politics who see the deep problem, right? And I think again, often the problem is how do you do this over a long because this is really long haul, and sometimes it happens and it dips out and comes like even. You know, the market reforms that happen in a state like Madhya Pradesh, you know, begin in the 80s, then they go into suspension, then they come back in thousands. And interesting to meet where you act some of reform consolidation. So, you know, the famous like thing about democratic consolidation, right, that you need to have two elections where the loser doesn't call off the game, right, mm-hmm. to have something like democratic, say, consolidated. You need that kind of thing with reform where in a situation where you have a change political party, the reform is deep enough that people don't, right? And interestingly, this was one moment I saw happen in Madhya Pradesh, 2000, Vijay Singh had bringing IT, opening up all the traders with a lot of Thing. And then he lost the election right, in 2003 and the BJP and the traders redoubled their effort, consolidate and, 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 and to close the, the amendment because, you know, they felt this was their party. And the BJP held its nerve on opening up, right? And that was important as a, where you actually see people hold the line. And we've seen this in other major reforms that I remember even in a different community health worker reforms in Chhattisgarh. But the only thing that changed, changed was the name. So it went from Indira Swasmadan to just Swasmadan. So you need to have that kind of ground built, which means you have to really believe and understand. And I think in the states, one work over, there are moving. And often, you know, this is what was interesting, like two of the states, which I think would have actually been most affected by the FPTC law, were actually both BJP states, both Madhya Pradesh and Karnataka were some of the states that had done the most interesting reform and could continue on that trajectory. Right? So I do think that done more, I think politicians get it. I think one big problem with policy is that we don't engage enough with the politics. We engage too much with bureaucrats who move around them. Mm. But the politicians do get it. And when they get it, they can do extraordinary things. And we have to remember even the regimes that we've got that we now want to reform. We go back to people like Charan Singh and we talk about them, right? And you mentioned Sharad Pawar and his work. And it is important. All political parties have in fact understand the dynamics. But we in policy academia don't treat policy make politicians as policy. 
And I think that's a big mistake we're making in a democracy not to do that and not to understand. And I think there was a moment, like I said, I think the current moment of competition over who gets credit and this move to like welfare is the transfers of kind and cash is a little worrying because what we really do need better directed public and people who are willing and only politics. So I think it is for all of us now to think about government ministers serious and to redouble our engagements there in one state that we're working on. For example, there's a state paper forum which is chaired by the chief to talk to people, right? To bring in experts, to have that. And I think if we don't do that, it's very, very tough forward in a way that we're talking. I think politicians get it more deeply and they have a longer game. In it. We think they only have an election. They actually, you know, and as for bureaucrats, there are many of them now with a lot of experience. Of course, they tend to become clearer and more engaged sometimes as their former. But there's a lot of collective experience across state which we can draw. And I think people get it. So that's some cause for hope. It's going to need a lot of work. There's more there than... Tala and Mark, uh, one quick question. You mentioned the budget's coming. And obviously, a lot of recommendations from the industry have gone in. What do you expect in the budget? Is the finance minister going to give some sops to the agri-sector and signal certain confidence back to the farming and agri-sector to win back, given that there is an election also? What are your thoughts uh, on what's going to be announced in the budget? My thoughts are, all right, not discussion but I okay. freaking love budget. I first of all, I think the biggest gift that any finance could give India policy. I can't stand that every year who gets what, what soft, what is the one thing that that you know as a longtime American immigrant to India that I wish people learned. Things exactly the, right. Your job is to provide policy, not softs, not breaks, not discount. I don't think people realize how much of a holdover right this approach to budget drives me nuts. And All I very, want them to do one year is change. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting uh, observation, Marka. You know, just to add one thing that during the pandemic something Samudra and I pointed out a number of people have pointed out for all the reform that does need to happen on both the procurement just you know opening it up you know, much much more you know agroecologically and both decentralized the interesting point here is that these systems work so actually we have had record procurement and of the you know PDS has functioned have food relief and that tells you something else. It's not about providing a saw. It tells you that if you have the institutional crisis, you can do something, right? They were the only instruments that were actually there, the institutions that were still functioning, even with all their limitations. And I think, you know, again, budgets cannot traditional grow. They cannot produce good, well function. And I think we don't spend enough thinking about what kinds of public investment, where do you need to, what kinds of capacities do you need, whether those are capacities for regulation or better directing invest, you know, we create all the tuition, very hollowed out. And, you know, again, you, you have numbers, like 10,000, uh, but we know the quality of enormously. No, and I mean, so it, it but that's all, but that all, that, okay, given reality, given that it's so very deep, right, because if I, if I look at my own country, the only thing happened in the last 50 years, hollow, right, yeah. like, through an incredible, right, through an insane, right, you know, in, in, in New York, after at 40, they vaccinated 8 million people, okay? You know, so, so the hollowing out of the public that phenomenon 80 uh, or global. But but then I, I look what maybe for the environment that we find ourselves in. What I would love to see, if I were to say one thing, KK, that I would want, I would want them to take as much, keep, keep the agriculture budget back, but triple the amount. That would be my, like, the more, given that we have no functioning institution, right, then, then, but, but UBI works real well, right, then maybe the answer, right, rather than hoping for a loved question is, you know, how much can we just 
how, and this, I think it goes back to coupling, you know, agriculture from farmer welfare. How much can give in farmer welfare and then hopefully get a freer hand, to, you know, and, and, and do that tit for tat. I once, yeah. um, many, yeah. many 12, um, was at IMM the Bud and I, I was asked in studying the agribusiness benefit there, you know, how much in a direct benefit trend do you think would be, ha- would have paid for a farmer to accept no more input subs, no more output outright, nothing, you know, no, no discounted fertilizer. I think that could be, Relevant, but I would be curious. So I think PM Kisan has a similar problem in terms of income that you mentioned land, right? That um, yeah. it, it goes to landed farm, and part of the problem again, we see a lot of tenant uh, farm altruism. So that is a problem in terms of inclusion. And some states like Odisha and others have got better at figuring out how to include more to farm in the DB program, right? So I think if that that's it, it remains a problem, it can be addressed. I also think you know the the point you're making was an old debate that was also rehearsed when thinking about Mike's livelihoods, right? And the people who were actually talking about livelihood finance said you need much more if you really want farmers or any other kind of invest in some. Otherwise, all of this goes towards consumption, right? And that's completely understandable in the context. And that is the point about, you know, blank transfer. They will use it for what they will use it. But if you want to actually get them to use a change, you need much more. So I think I am not opposed to that. I think the your point about institutions are very well taken. I mean, I run a called the State Capacity Initiative, and I completely, you know, a lot of time it has to go in trying to think about are we dreaming up some dream of insurance, and are we being incredibly nice, right? And so I would say in the short run, immediate space, moving more to cash, giving people larger, letting that at least happen, if that was all fine. But eventually, whether it's for agriculture, whether we are going to have problems, and that will require the use of public, right? And better, more well-directed public land. Again, it's not about whether it's all in the public sector. I think part of the problem with the public also was that we imagined you needed to enterprise. And that is not necessarily where we have to go or keep going, right? Public institutions are not the same as public sector enterprise. And well-directed public investment in infrastructure. We've seen this time and time again, you know, even with, with this agribusiness, companies and corporates and others go where there has been good modicum of public investment infrastructure exists. Transportation, there is a better system for move storage. The idea that you just leave it to everyone and the private sector will come and invest, we've seen that doesn't happen. Again, Bihar may be an extreme example, but there are many other states which will wear you out on, right? The problem is, and, and, and again, it's about putting the right things at the right. You know, you have this green level, this example of what public sector investment does uh, beyond public enterprises, not just the FCI and procurement, but looking at the entire ecosystem. And you wrote very powerfully recently about agricultural science and the institutions of agricultural science. There are a whole range of other kinds of investments that need to happen uh, in this space. And <clears throat> I think we've learned our lessons. We've learned our lessons on bad reforms. We've learned our lessons on one size fits all. We've learned our packages for the green revolution what we haven't seemed to learn is the lesson of the role of the state in providing kinds of taking certain kinds of risks providing certain kinds of that no other actor can you know i want to share my experience when i was part of the prime minister's committee for food and agri reform the pmo himself asked the minister of state for agri the minister of state for finance and the finance minister to actually go down to every state and start discussing what their issues and problems are so that an overall budgeting and policy framework to allow for funding of the reform process which started in 1999 budget a big bank budget and then went on for 2000 and 2001 
we have all these gst councils and don't you think we should probably even have an agri council where the center and state can actually openly discuss their issues and what their requirements are whether from a budgeting or finance or from regulatory point of view is there some sort of a mechanism uh, where we can institutionalize this with the politicians i mean i i just jump in you know quick response to that but i think it's a one it's a very very important um, and it's not easy and i think part of the problem with this we all are talking about a GST council-like structure because we have this one institution and we know the GST council has also got its challenges. But I think unless we really invest new imagination for what federalism and intergovernment India is going to look like, move behind beyond the term competitive and cooperative federalism to actually investing. And this is a great example of investment that simply hasn't happened. It's not particularly expensive and does not require enterprise or like a big PSU to be created, but actually requires an imagination of, of governance. And, you know, I think this idea has actually been, I think, discussed quite a lot. And, it, you know, at the moment, even the current prime minister, when he was in chief minister of Gujarat, was a very strong proponent of federalism. And you know, it is one of those things that sort of always a little upsetting that happens in India where at they always say, you know, everybody likes federalism and decentralization up to their level. We have to be able to build, you know, actual systems of federalism, decentralization, subsidiary coordination. And good decentralization and federalism requires good coordination. So the kinds of mechanisms we are talking about, I mean, just to go back to the point Mark was making earlier about you know, I don't think you were wrong about saying that FCI would have started or now start procuring less and less Haryana. But that's not a good way to go about, right, like in a, you know, in a, in a sort of bypass mode or a getting around the state mode. We so far have talked India about by stealth. And then we've talked now about reform by bypass. The words we yeah. use are bulldozing and bypass. Then this I, is not healthy. No, of course it's not healthy. I'd love to see an agriculture, I'd exactly. love to center state agriculture coordination council. You know, want to put uh, Chief Minister Stalin in charge. Yeah, no, exactly. And, but this is, you know, it's a good, these are states that believe Sorry, in... I can be a little material. No, 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 but, but you are not wrong with that. That is one state right now is acting about federalism in terms, but also coming prepared to GST meet with proposal. It is in standard for them to do the work. You know, one of the things we never announce are the secretariats, right? Mm. So we create the council, but what would keep the council working is a really good, high quality, well solid in terms of search criteria that allows this work to happen, that synthesizes, circulates them, does the prep, keeps, you know, business running, you know, the quality and, and to its credit, many times parliament has done very good in challenging legislation. It is a problem that less of our bills are going through this kind of you know, this, um, this working committee would have been full, I don't know, 20. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Put the working committee where it's, we have to trust each other, right? But we don't trust. And so we, we do sell. So then we do, so then we do this kind of approach which you're talking is, you know, it's a surprise and then we have to pitch this as courageous because nobody else is willing to do it. But in the end, it will fail. Like, you know, we're not doing the, um, and so we don't do pre-registrative processes, proper scrutiny, but we do have the institutions that can do this. And, you know, the committee you just, and the work that we can, I think, you know, that is something we should go back to studying these, they have worked. Correct. And try and do them again, you know, and let's try and do them better. Absolutely. Mikela and Mark, we are running out of time. It was a real interesting discussion between the two of you and so many points and thoughts uh, that have emerged from both of you in terms of the future of uh, agri-reforms in India. Before I go, i really love to thank you and Mikela 
our sponsors, our team which has put together and the Omnicon is running wild in India. Please stay safe and take care. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much, KK. Please take Thank care. You. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.